Well, this morning we're going to uh, conclude our series uh, entitled Triggered, dealing with anger and trying to make anger positive rather than destructive. You know, for centuries, people have been asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And when they don't find the answers that they're looking for, uh, typically anger ensues. You know, there are many reasons. There, there are as many reasons to be angry with God as there are people in the world today. The fact is, injustice is all around us. Sometimes we can see the person or, or we can see the organization that is at fault, which enables us to maybe point out or point our anger in a specific direction. Um, but what about those times where there's nobody to blame? What about those times when you just can't make sense of what's going on or what has happened? You know, we watch as news from around the nation and around the world pours into our homes through TVs and computers and cell phones, and we're inundated with stories of evil people doing despicable things. So we get angry. Rightly so, we get angry. Angry at those people. But what about those stories that are just heartbreaking stories? What about those stories that just seem to happen for no apparent reason? How do we reconcile those stories in our mind? There's nobody to get angry at. Let me give you an example. These are both headlines from 2022. One headline was that a paramedic arrived at the scene of a car crash and immediately went to work on the young woman trapped in the back seat. Sadly, the woman's injuries were too significant and she succumbed to them. What the paramedic didn't know was that she was working on her own daughter at the time. Her daughter's injuries were so severe that her mother didn't recognize her. When she went home after her shift, authorities broke the devastating news. Her daughter was just 17 years old. Another headline. Another tragic story was that of a single father and his two-year-old son. The pair were known to keep to themselves, but when family members hadn't heard from them, they called in to the police to have a wellness check. The father had died of a cardiac arrest, and in the absence of the father's care, the son had also died of starvation. The father and son were discovered on the bed together, lying next to one another. Folks, how can you move past something like that? Now, I share these stories with you, not only to illustrate the point this morning, but because I frankly don't want to share our stories. Because as bad as these are, when we start talking about our stories, they're even harder. You know? There are things that have happened to people within our congregation that just seem to defy logic. Why would God allow these things to happen? 
Why didn't God stop these things from happening? And if God really loves me, why is he allowing me to go through so much pain? Well, if you find yourself dealing with some of these questions, then I am really, really thankful that you are here today. I hope to be able to provide you with some steps to help you work through some of these feelings that you may have, some of this anger that you may have toward God. Dealing with anger against God is a process, but unless you start taking deliberate steps in that process toward healing, you will continue to wallow in your anger and wallow in your grief. Now, there are many stories in the Old Testament about people who were angry with God. And if you've been a part of, your com of our community groups the last couple of weeks, you've discussed some of those stories. Today, we're going to be considering a few of these to see how these individuals navigated the minefield of being angry with God. We're also going to look at some of the writings in the New Testament of people like Peter and Paul and James and the teachings of Jesus to gather pertinent teaching about the work of God in our lives through pain and suffering. Now, throughout this study on the topic of anger, uh, I have consulted many books and resources, as I always do, but there was one resource that I feel like I should highlight for you. Um, many of the concepts uh, for today's message came from this particular book, and the book is entitled Anger, Taming a Powerful Emotion. It's written by Dr. Gary Chapman, and you may be familiar with Dr. Chapman because he is the author of the best-selling uh, book series on the five love languages. Um, if you're struggling with this area of anger in your life, uh, and you feel like the four weeks we've spent on it have just kind of scratched the surface of dealing with some of the issues you're dealing with, I would encourage you to seek out this book and purchase it. Um, it's available. Uh, the most expensive option is $14 on Amazon for a paperback. Kindle's 11 If you go to christianbook.com, it's $12.99 or $9 for the ebook. Or if you do like me and you want to order from the used bookstore, you don't mind a few, you, uh, you know, bent pages and underlines in it, you can get it starting at $3, all right? It's a, it's a bargain at that. Um, so as we begin our study today, looking at some of the stories from the Old Testament, you know, there's really no better place to start than in the life of Job. Job was a righteous man that endured unrelenting tragedy you see God allowed Job to lose his wealth his family and his health and as a result this righteous man felt intense anger toward God let's take a look at Job's disposition toward God after all of this had happened to him if you're in your Bible and you want to turn to the book of Job, uh, we'll be looking at Job chapter 16 to begin. Now let me hasten to remind you, if, or if you're visiting with us, uh, the YouVersion Bible app uh, has an event for today's uh, service, and so if you scan the QR code in your bulletin, you can go there. 
We are going to be in a lot of different places this morning in Scripture. Um, and so uh, the, the event in the YouVersion Bible app has all of those Scriptures already there for you. And most of them will be on the screen as always. So we'll begin reading in Job chapter 16. I want us to just pick a couple of verses out of here because I have so little time to cover so much ground this morning. In Job 16 verse 11, Job is uh, talking here and he said, God gives me up to the ungodly and cast me into the hands of the wicked. Verse 12 I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. Now look at verse 22. Job goes on and says, For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. And then in verse 11 of chapter 17, my days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. Now the first verse of this book, or the first chapter of this book, tells us that Job was a man that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. But here, in, by chapter 16 and 17, we find that Job is angry and just ready to die. In fact, he tells us in chapter 3 that he was ready to die. But by chapter 16 and 17, he's angry. And so the first thing that I want us to notice this morning as we look at this topic of being angry with God, if you find yourself angry with God, you must trust God in the darkness as you would have trusted him in the light. Job trusted God. He feared God. He obeyed God when everything was going good. But what he had to discover was when things are going bad, he also had to trust God. You see, God had blessed him with great success. He was a wealthy man. He had a large family. And in a strange conversation that we find in Job chapter 1, God and Satan are discussing this man, Job. God said, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan said, oh, he only obeys you because you've blessed him so much. And so God gave him permission to go and bring harm to his life. And you see, the real test of Job's obedience and Job's trust came not when God was blessing him, but when God allowed Satan to attack him. Imagine if this was your Thursday of this week. You see, Job, one day of a week, as he was sitting there in his home, had a messenger come and let him know that foreign raiders had killed all of his servants, save one, and stole all 500 of his oxen and all 500 of his donkeys. Not moments later, the next servant came running in and said, fire came down from heaven, burned up all of your sheep and all of the shepherds. I alone was able to escape. A few minutes later, another servant came in and said another group of foreigners had raided 
his camels, stole all 3,000 camels, killed those servants tending to them, except the one that was able to get away and tell Job. And if that wasn't enough that day, one more servant came in and told Job that a strong wind had come up and knocked down the house where all of his children had gathered together for a time of fellowship, eating with one another, and all of his children and all of the servants, save one, were killed as a result. Can you imagine having a day like that? Now, all of us here have had difficult days before, and I, I don't want to belittle the difficult days that you've had, nor would I want you to belittle the difficult days I've had. But folks, none of us have ever had a day like that. So how did Job respond? Well, if you look at Job chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 22, it says that he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then notice verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all of that, Job did not charge God with wrong. It, he did not blame God for these things that were happening. His initial response was great. However difficult this must have been, it was a good response. The problem is that things just got harder from there. You see, God allowed Satan next to harm him physically, and so Job lost his health. And then Job's wife, being the encourager that she was, just kept telling Job, curse God and die. And then, of course, his friends came and, and argued with him that he must have done something wrong to incur the wrath of God in his life, such as he had. He must have deserved it, they said. And so by chapter 16 and 17, after all of this, Job's anger had intensified and it continued to grow. So how did God respond to this? Well, um, the book is quite long and it's filled with, with uh, speeches back and forth between Job and his friends and uh, they would accuse him and he would respond. And, and so finally in Job chapter 38, 39, 40, and 41, we find a response from God. Now, I'm not going to read all of that this morning, but basically after listening to Job, all of his expressions of anger, God listened sympathetically and then his response was not one of condemnation. In fact, God reminded Job that his ways... God's ways were not always understandable to men. He reminded Job that he was the all-powerful creator and sustainer of all that is. And that in the final analysis, he said that he is a God of justice, but he is a God who can be trusted. Notice how Job responds in the final chapter of this book. Chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I know, talking to God directly, 
He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and I will make it, and you make it known to me. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is, this is amazing if you dive into this. Folks, Job's response ultimately to God was to trust him. To trust him in the dark times of his life just as he had trusted him in the good times before. And notice what verses 5 and 6 tell us about Job's relationship with God. It tells us that it had changed as a result of these dark days. He said, before I had heard about you, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. God used this dark time in Job's life to draw him closer and to deepen his relationship with him. If there's ever someone who had a right to be angry with God, it was a lady named Elizabeth Elliot. And if you don't know her story, I don't have time to tell it today, but her husband was killed while serving on the mission field. But here's something that she wrote in a book uh, called Suffering is Never for Nothing, which unfortunately I've not read the book, but I think I want to read it now. Uh, in this book, Elizabeth Elliot said, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. It is through suffering that God teaches us to trust him. Anybody can trust someone in the good times. But God gives us or allows the consequences of sin and evil to bring about bad things in our life so that we will depend upon him. So we must trust him in the darkness as we trust him in the light. The second thing I want us to notice is that we must trust his word even when it is unsatisfying. We must trust in his word even when it is unsatisfying. Let me try to explain. You see, when we try to understand God's ways in our life, in all of these difficult times that happen and so forth, there are basically two options that, that will, we can go to logically in regard to human suffering. There are two ways that we can think about this. One is that God could, and I believe he could, God could eliminate all sinful people and then wipe out all the pain by their sinful acts. That would solve the problem of suffering, wouldn't it? The problem is that would also eliminate the entire human race. Because we're all sinners. So even though that's logical, it's not necessarily the, the, the end that I, I'm hoping for, personally. 
Another logical possibility would be for God to step in and miraculously avert all of the consequences of evil in the lives of everyone. Now, while this sounds inviting, the problem is, is that it removes human freedom. It makes us into robots that must do only good deeds. And God did not create us that way. There can be no freedom without the possibility of evil. That's why when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, they had a choice. And they cho chose to sin. And as a result, all of us since have chosen to sin as well. So obviously, neither one of our logical options is a viable option. So the fact is, is that we're stuck dealing with the consequences of sin because of our freedom to choose to obey. But still, what about all those things that happen that we can't point a finger at somebody and say, you're the cause of this? What about all those things that happen that just don't make sense? Things that aren't caused by evil people or evil acts. In other words, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the fact is, is that God addresses this issue in his word. Uh, but frankly, sometimes what he has to say about it is difficult for us to accept. And I think it's important that we realize that it's difficult for us to accept. That's why I said we need to trust in God's word even when it's unsatisfying. It doesn't bring us all the satisfaction that we want to hear it, but we've got to trust that his word is true. For example, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The fact of the matter is, folks, the premise of the question, why do bad things happen to good people, the premise of the question is flawed. There are no good people. And you may not want to hear that from me this morning. But we must trust God's word even when we don't like what it says. If we look further on in the writings of Peter, something else that we need to remember that God's word says about suffering is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 6 says, In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying here? He's saying, yes, you're going to go through trials right now, but it's only for a little while. And that trial that you're going through is going to purify you as a fire would purify gold. God is going to use that to create us to become the person that he wants us to come. And that takes us to the next verse, which we find in Romans chapter 8, 
a verse that you're all familiar with. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Folks, we must trust in the fact that God is working all these things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose because he's bringing all this together to conform us to the image of his son. We cannot properly understand verse 28 unless we read verse 29. His purpose in our life is to conform us to the image of his son. And so God uses this suffering to bring about spiritual maturity in our lives. That's what James chapter 1 tells us. James 1 verse 2 tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when, we meet, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's goal for us is to be fully mature, conformed to the image of Christ, complete in him. And so he gives us trials to test us, to help us to grow. One last passage that I wanted to share. This is from the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 9. And I, I think this one gives us a different perspective over this whole thing. Because you see in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man that was born blind. And his disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or was it parent, his parents? And notice what Jesus said. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The only reason this man had suffered blindness for his entire life was so that God could be glorified in his healing. You know, sometimes we go through things just so that God can be glorified by giving us the grace that we need to get through. So you know what? We better be glorifying God in the way that we're getting through it. Can I just take a moment real quickly to acknowledge the fact that someone who is in the midst of grief or suffering or some sort of, of grave injustice, that person is not going to want to hear any of those verses in that moment. Okay? Please don't memorize these and say, I'm going to use this as my conversation starters at a funeral visitation. No, that's not the goal here. That's not what you need to do. They may not want to hear these verses in that moment, but folks, it does not mean it's any less true. God's word is true. So if you want to do something in that way, encourage them to get into the word of God. 
You see, just like we need to trust that God is faithful when we cannot see his faithfulness, we also need to trust his word to be true even when it leaves us longing for more information or greater explanation. If someone you know is angry with God, let me caution you about quoting any of these verses. You do not need to go quote Romans 8.28 to someone who is grieving the loss of a loved one. But a simple word of encouragement to stay in the word daily. That's all they need because then the best teacher, the Holy Spirit of God, will have the opportunity to guide them into the truth that God wants them to have. Continuing to be open to the word of God is a vital step in working through our anger with God. Even when it doesn't tell us everything that we want to know or everything that we want to understand, we must trust in his word. The next step is that we must not be angry at God, but we must take our anger to God. My time is fleeting. <laughs> I want us to look at this uh, life of Elijah just for a moment. Um, so if you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to look at that in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to, I want to note something that Gary Chapman uh, had to say about this. He said, you need not be ashamed of your anger, for it is evidence of your concern for fairness. You can freely express your perception of things to God. You will not hurt his feelings, nor will you stir up his anger. God can handle it if we are angry at him. He goes on to say, your anger will not catch him by surprise. He knows what you are, you are experiencing, and he wants you to share your thoughts and your feelings with him. And folks, that's exactly what I see here in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. Now, this story is one of my favorite se sections of scripture um, because of all the things that are happening in Elijah's life and how he responds uh, to them and and in some of these situations we get raw footage of his life you know this is just the the nitty-gritty and then it shows how God corrects him as well now to understand this you need to know a little bit about what's going on here so I'm going to try in the next two minutes to give you a summary of what's happening in chapter 17 through 19 you see it starts out with some amazing victories in Elijah's life it uh, he first goes to King Ahab, who was an evil king of Israel, and he told King Ahab that there was a drought coming, and this drought was going to come because it was punishment for Ahab worshiping at the altar of Baal that he had created. And so Elijah tells him a drought's coming, and then Elijah goes and hides from King Ahab during this drought. And God used birds. Probably not the kind that you had this morning, Brother Ron, but birds, he had some birds on his back porch, uh, birds to bring food to him, to feed him, brought ra ravens brought food to them. And so then it goes on and it says that Elijah performed miracles among foreigners, uh, which uh, 
It was a, a woman who was about to die because she had no food. And she, he said, give me what you have, and I promise it will never run out. But he did that among foreigners. These were not Israelites. And then toward the middle of chapter 18, Elijah goes back to King Ahab at the end of this drought, and he challenged the prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah to meet at Mount Carmel. And there was going to be a showdown on the top of Mount Carmel. And so when that showdown went down, the 450 prophets of Baal made fools of themselves trying to get their gods to bring fire down from heaven. Elijah was mocking them, telling them that, oh, yell a little louder, maybe your God's asleep, or maybe he's gone to relieve himself. Elijah was not uh, the nicest of, of gentlest people, you know. Um, and then, after all was said and done, Elijah said, okay, now it's my turn. He fixed the altar. He dug a pit around it, and he poured massive amounts of water on top of the altar, enough to fill up this trench that he had dug around it. Think about it. This was at the end of a drought. Imagine how precious that water must have been. And then he bent down and prayed to God in heaven and said, show yourself to be mighty. God's fire came down from heaven, consumed the entire altar, including the stones, and licked up all the water. After that, Elijah called for the execution of all 450 prophets of Baal. And then, if that wasn't enough for that chapter, Elijah, with no clouds in the sky anywhere, says to King Ahab, Get ready, the storms are coming. Rain's about to come. Not a single cloud. But you know what? The rains did come. What an amazing series of victories that this man had in his life. But then, when we get into chapter 19, uh, everything goes downhill. Let's look at Elijah's defeat. You see, uh, Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, threatened his life, and so he went on the run, and in desperation, um, he uh, fell down in the wilderness under a, a broom tree or a juniper tree, and uh, in desperation, uh, he, he cries out to God and says, my life is not worth living. Now, the word anger here is not used in the biblical text, but I think we can read between the lines. Elijah's angry now at this point. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord ministers to him in that moment. He said, go and rest. Elijah laid down and he rested. And then after he had rested for a while, an angel tapped him on the shoulder and said, get up, eat. So he did. You know what he did next? He laid back down and he rested some more. A little while later, angel again tapped him on the shoulder. Get up and eat. And what we find there is that the angel, after ministering to him in this way, it sustained Elijah for a great length of time. We'll look at that in just a moment. And then in chapter 19, Elijah, after going uh, to another mountain, Mount Horeb, uh, God reveals himself to Elijah in a whisper. Elijah voices his anger with the Lord after that, and the Lord responds and puts Elijah 
in his place. Now, I think I love this passage so much because I identify so much with what Elijah does in this story. You know, great victory one minute and agonizing defeat in the next. Um, There's so much that we could unpack from these verses, but I want us to just focus on those that specifically relate to Elijah's anger toward God. You see, we see Elijah become desperate to the point of suicide in verses 4 through 8 in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. So how does God respond? Well, I told you. He, he get, told him to rest. Then he woke him up, gave him food, and told him to go back and rest. You know, sometimes, folks, the best thing we can do to work through our anger is rest, eat, and repeat. I think we could learn a lot from that very simple statement. Rest, eat, and repeat. Now this worked for Elijah for a time because verse 8 says that he went in the strength of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights after this happened. Now by the time that Elijah arrived at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, Six weeks later, you know, 40 days later, he was once again feeling angry toward God. And so I want us to notice a couple of things about this. And the first thing that I notice here was the fact that he was once again angry. Can I tell you today, sometimes we get over our anger only to have it rear its ugly head once again. That is normal. Do you know why? Because we are sinners. We can get over our anger, but sometimes it's, it rears its ugly head once again. So long as we live in this sin-sick body of flesh, our anger will continue to war against us, against our passions and our, our desires. Remember, that's what anger is. It's passion against injustice. So you may think you've solved a problem, that you've gotten over something. Just be aware it may come back. All right? As we dig in a little further in 19 verses 9 through 18, we see this passage about Elijah uh, uh, revealing himself. I'm uh, sorry, God revealing himself to Elijah. Um, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. But do you remember how? In a still small voice is the way the King James puts it. In a whisper. You see, God wanted Elijah to hear him. But he did not want to be big and boisterous. He wanted him to be an intimate relation to him. He wanted to answer him with a, a soft answer but notice how Elijah responded if you if you had time to read it and I encourage you to do so you'll find out that that after hearing this still small voice after cowering uh, hiding his face in his cloak then he went out and he responded defensively to the Lord But if you notice, God did not engage the argument. 
God did not engage him in an argument about what he said, but rather God gave Elijah some instructions as to what to do next. So what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with feeling anger toward God. But we must not ever let our anger toward God keep us from serving the Lord as he is instructing us to do. God can handle your anger. But that doesn't mean that you are excused from serving him. He, rather than God arguing with Elijah about what he had said, the, whether it was true or not, he gave him something to do. And when he gave him those instructions, he did so quietly. You see, God quietly addressed Elijah's erroneous statement that he was the only one left and no one else was left that was faithful to God. And God said, you know what? I've got 7,000 others that have never bowed their knee to Baal. But how did God respond to Elijah? Softly. Do you remember Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The Lord spoke to him in a whisper. And in this we see the next step in dealing with God, with our anger toward God. And that is, after taking your anger to God, we must be ready to listen to his message. We must be ready to listen. In Proverbs 10, verse 17, it says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Two verses later, it goes on and says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Folks, we cannot listen to the message of God if we're constantly complaining about what's going on. After we take our anger to God, and I didn't bring this up earlier, but when we're angry with God, we don't need to tell everybody in the world about it. We need to talk to him about it. So after we take our anger to God, then we must be ready to listen. And listening implies obedience. It's not enough to merely hear the word of God, but we must listen. We must obey. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Well, I promise this is the last place I'm going to have us turn to this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 9, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Did you notice that? He said what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen, everything that I have done, do that, and the God of peace will be with you. Which brings us to our last point. And that is, we must receive his peace that eventually comes to you. 
We must receive the peace that eventually comes to us. You see, if we back up in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest promises of Scripture is found right here in Philippians chapter 4. And that is when we pray to God, He gives us a peace that goes beyond human comprehension. We don't understand how a person could be at peace in a situation that they're finding. But when we lift up those requests to the Lord, in everything it says, lift up our requests to God. We should pray to God in everything, even when we are angry with him. Notice what happens when we take everything to the Lord in prayer. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Guard our hearts and our minds. And then verse 9, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Not only will he give us peace, he will give us himself because he is peace. Now folks, I'm not going to try to convince you today that it is easy for you to walk through your anger issues with God. I am going to tell you this. It is possible to deal with your anger issues with God. But only when you take it to Him. You've got to take your anger to the Lord. And the key is to work at it step by step, day by day. So in conclusion, let me just sum up these, last, these five steps in dealing with your anger toward God. The first is trust in his faithfulness. He is faithful in the light. Folks, he's just as faithful in the dark. We just don't always see it. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his word. There's stuff in here that's hard. Doesn't make it any less true. We must trust in the veracity of his word. The third thing is we must take our anger to him. Don't just be angry at him. You must take your anger to him. And then be ready to listen to his message. And it will come to you in a still small voice. Because he knows we're already angry. He's not going to yell at us. He's the one who wrote. A soft answer turns away wrath. It's going to come to us in a still small voice. So be ready to listen. And then be ready to experience incomprehensible peace. 
I don't know what you're walking through today. I don't know what you've dealt with in your life. The simple fact of the matter is, is that we've all dealt with difficult things. And as we, as we approach those things, as we think about those things, sometimes it's hard to even begin to imagine experiencing peace. But folks, that's why Paul wrote what he wrote when the Holy Spirit inspired him to say, a peace that goes beyond human comprehension, that surpasses human understanding. We can experience that peace. The question is, will you take that first step toward reconciling your anger with God today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for uh, these examples in Scripture and the true teaching uh, from your word. And Father, I, I just want to acknowledge that there are people in this building I know that are hurting that are still dealing with anger and not understanding what's, what's happening in their lives or why things happen the way they happen. And so, Father, I just pray that as uh, we sing this next song, that you would help them to take that first step of trusting you in the dark, just as they did before when things were all fine and good. Lord, help us to learn to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.